Investors Chronicle. Companies and Market Show. It is Wednesday the 26th of October as we record a little earlier than usual. On the show today, we have Julian Hoffman, Mark Robinson and Alex Hamer. And as always, our host, Dan Jones. Dan, what's coming up on the show today? Hi, John. Yeah, this week we have our, the first half of our AIM 100 feature in the magazine. So we are going to spend a bit of time talking about three companies from the first half of that top 100. Then we are going to be speaking to our commodities expert, Alex Hamer, about the US Inflation Reduction Act and how that's starting to feed through to some companies uh, in the US, but also over here. And finally, we may take a little look at some interesting goings on in the world of advertising, but that is time permitting. So we'll see about that. And as usual, before we get there, a quick news roundup with me. The number of profit warnings issued by UK listed companies in the third quarter hit their highest level since 2008 as companies faced higher costs and slumping demand. Some 86 profit warnings were issued during the three-month period. Lots of earnings reports at the moment. Let's go through some of them. Google's parent company Alphabet fell short of analyst expectations for digital advertisement growth. The 6% rise in the third quarter for US advertising revenue missed the 9% target and triggered a tech sell-off as fears of an economic slowdown in the US grow. Deutsche Bank has reported one of its strongest quarterly performances since before the financial crisis and is on course for its best annual profits since 2009. Meanwhile, Barclays, Santander, Unicredit, Standard Chartered, HSBC and UBS have all beaten analyst estimates. Huge profits for these banks have come on the back of rising interest rates in the third quarter. Education specialist Pearson is on track to meet full-year profit expectation after a very strong performance from its English language arm. Some good news at retail company THG, whose shares jumped 16% after it stuck with its full-year trading guidance in the third quarter update. The company said it still expects to post annual revenue growth of between 10 and 15% and adjusted cash profits of between 100 and £130 million. Specialist travel retailer On The Beach said in a full-year trading update that annual sales outstripped pre-pandemic 2019 levels by 16%, but did warn that the cost-of-living crisis is impacting demand for holiday bookings. Shares fell 3%. And Made.com is in death spiral territory. On Wednesday morning, it confirmed that sales had stopped and its market capitalization has been further demolished. It is now down from 200p a share at listing in June 2021 to now trading under one pence. As I said, loads of earnings reports this week. You'll find them in the magazine and on the website. But for now, back to the AIM 100 with Dan and co. Thanks, John. Yes, uh, as you say, this week, our cover feature due out today, by the time you hear this, is the first half of our annual AIM 100 roundup. I say roundup, but really it's a detailed look at uh, the 100 largest companies by market capitalization on AIM, albeit that largest 100 was decided a month ago. So a few changes, especially in a year like this, when share prices are moving around quite a bit. What we've done today is we've taken three companies from the first 50, uh, the second 50 are out next week, I should say. We've taken three companies and we're going to discuss them in a bit more detail. Starting with the choice of our company's editor, Mark Robinson. Mark, 
you have singled out Pan-African resources as not necessarily, you know, a stock to buy right now, but it's certainly an interesting uh, proposition, shall we say, at the moment. Yeah, I, I think it's um, also some amusing on the gold price as well, because, mm. uh, you know, we've we've had a year where we've seen, or 18 months where we've seen a massive increase in the money supply and the US and elsewhere as well. But this sort of dollar debasement or the, the subsequent dollar debasement has, has done little in terms of uh, propping up the gold price, because there seems to be a few other safe havens around at the moment and given that the dollar you know given that the dollar has got an inverse correlation to gold prices this is what sort of this is what's held it down over recent times but i guess with uh, pan-african uh, and alex hamer might want to comment on this as well is that the the most pleasing detail is that they've managed to keep a, a lid on costs or largely anyway and you've got to bear in mind that it's um you know, it's in any energy intensive business as well. Some of their costs at least are sort of dollar denominated. So, you know, that presents a real problem for them or a potential problem for them. But they've they've kept a lid on costs. As I say, it's only up by about 2% on, on the prior year. And they re- substantially re- reduced their debt burden as well throughout the year. And that point on costs as well, it sort of contrasts with some of the bigger plays in the market, uh, such as uh, Newmont and, and Barrick. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's... Cheap at the moment, as you might as you might expect. You know, I think it's just on a forward rating of uh, four times uh, adjusted earnings. The, the point to consider as well for for investors is that sometimes, well, very often actually, if you if you're going to get gain exposure to uh, the gold price, the way to do it really is often to go through the gold producers themselves because of their operational gearing. You know, whether we've seen a sort of floor for the gold price at the moment, it's difficult uh, to say. Perhaps we could bring in um, Alex here if he's got any thoughts on on where the price might be headed. Yeah, I mean, as all forecasters would have found in, in, in the past year or so, it's um, it's a bit of a monk's game. For gold, we've got this this real relationship with the US dollar, but also interest rates in the US. And... It all points to uh, a confusion in the year ahead. So the, the gold price has been fairly weak in recent months. You know, we've, we've seen levels of about sixteen fifty. But I think what will make a difference is when the US Fed is kind of seen to have got a handle on on inflation, and it, it's not clear when that would be. So you know, I don't have a, a massively clear forecast. I mean. It's not just me saying things are muddled. It's it's analysts who say who are kind of shrugging at the moment. Um, obviously, the gold bugs are are doing their usual. You know, monetary supply is insane. GDP yeah. debt ratios are have gone mad, and gold is going to be five thousand dollars an ounce. Just so you know, and and people will be selling you know silver to eat. You know, the, that's the kind of spread of um of forecast. But you know. Any gold producer that can keep its cost down now is 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 in a pretty good good spot, I think. Yeah, I think Pan African is is pretty well set, especially uh, compared to some competitors there. And uh, I just would reiterate that point as well: is that uh, investors can uh, get a march uh, on the market if they uh, invest in companies rather than the physical metal itself, because you, you do get that uh, benefit coming through of operational gearing. So that's where we are with gold, Dan. As you say, it seems to have sorted its operations, its balance sheet out a little bit. 
there is perhaps a contrast there with uh, one or two other gold miners, which are mentioned in the AIM 100. But I think the other interesting thing is you say, Mark, is just the, the, the level of that valuation right now. It's, you know, pretty bombed out. I was speaking actually the other, the other day, uh, we had an event last week in Edinburgh and there was a, a deep value investor was there, former Bailey Gifford uh, man. So I think I can see why he left Bailey Gifford given their philosophy nowadays is very different from deep value. Yeah. But he seems to like, he, he said he just likes buying things on, you know, PEs of two and uh, waiting for them to reverse and, you know, one in 10 will come good. This is not quite down that, those levels, but but as with yeah. many stocks on AIM this year, you know, it has fallen. I should, this is a bit different. I, let me qualify that because overall this year, the share price is relatively flat, but that does disguise a bit of a run up as people thought high inflation equals good times for gold, perhaps, and yeah. then came back down when they realized otherwise. But yeah, but it does just show, you know, some of these companies are trading at very, very cheap levels. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's enough in itself to uh, mm. prompt um, investors to take action, but yeah. uh, you've just got to you've just got to sort of snout out the quality there and the value in the market. It is true as well that we are reaching the point now where people should really start be looking around. Actually, I've been I've been keeping an eye on volumes in AIM as well, and they've trailed off quite appreciably since uh, March of this year as well, which uh, indicates that people have taken a step back and are just reassessing where the market is at the moment. Of course, it's sort of, uh, as, as with the small cap market as well, it tends to, um, it tends to be uh, a good deal more volatile than uh, uh, the benchmark when, when markets are under pressure or, in fact, when the economy itself is under pressure. So it's something we'll be looking at in the magazine over the coming weeks and months, I think. Yeah. Let's move on to the next company on the list. It's one I've singled out, James Latham, which I think, again, is a good example of, a quality company you can get on AIM. The index had a very tough year. A lot of investors have been burned. A lot of growth-focused stocks in particular have obviously struggled in particular. But James Lathan, you know, again, it's not had a fantastic year. It's not been as bad as some. But to me, this seems like a quality company with end markets, which, okay, are a bit uncertain, but it's been operating in them for a long time. It's the timber and panel manufacturer, for those who don't know. Another company priced at very very cheaply just on basic PE ratios, although as Mark says, that's not the be all end all. There are questions this year with a lot of manufacturers. I think it's been dealing with huge increases in input costs. I think as we say in the piece, these were already up by a third before the impact of the war in Ukraine, which produced some challenges in terms of obtaining alternative supplies to replace products that previously sourced from Russia. So there are definite challenges there, but but again, as you say, Mark, if this is the kind of time people should perhaps be starting to consider what might they be looking at? Yeah, I, I think, I think it, it differs from Pan-African because there is an underlying, well, its share price is not linked to the, the value of an underlying asset, anything like mm. that. So you've just got to take a, a call on the market. Obviously, it's understandable why the share price might be depressed at the moment because the, the sort of trading backdrop is uh, as deteriorated and is likely to continue deteriorating through into 2023 for some time. But it's a, a proven company uh, in the past. And so it's a pretty good example. In fact, a better example, really, of uh, those type of value plays that our readers will be looking at, or our, yeah. listen, our listeners, rather. For me as well, it perhaps contradicts you know, the notion that AIM is just all about you know fast fast growth companies that, that you know go up quickly and come down quickly because... Yeah, as I say, it's been around a long time. It's been around, what, 250 years, a bit longer. Yep. You know, has that quality assurance, I think, you know, has that, well, the assurance of quality, I should say, even in bad times. As you alluded to as well, I mean, it's a, it's another uh, story linked to 
US dollar strength because obviously mm-hmm. uh, you know, just operating that business has become that much more expensive through this year. But hopefully, as uh, sterling reappreciates, and I mean that's that's no guarantee. But if it does, then you know the outlook for the company itself should improve on that basis alone. Even though you know agri demand and into the markets that it sells into is likely to be you know flat at best. Yeah, uh, that is a good point. It has been hit by sterling weakness in the past, and clearly some of that will not yet be factored into results. I believe it's, you know, cost and revenue base is a, a little bit more balanced than it used to be, but we'll see how that comes through in the next, the next update. Now we turn to our third company, Julian has chosen, well, it's more of a couple, more like a couple of companies, really. We're looking at the asset and wealth managers, of which there are several on AIM and several in the AIM 100. The specific ones we're going to talk about today, uh, Brooks McDonald and Gresham House, Julian. Yes, so these are a couple of interesting ones uh, in terms in the context of the Ains market. Uh, Brooks particularly has grown quite substantially over the last fifteen years. So they went from five hundred million under asset uh, uh, funds under management to more than sixteen billion at the last count. So it's, uh, it's been a very fast growing manager. The secret to its success, I think, is that it's based in sort of pleasant county towns. So imagine the sort of place where you might go and watch uh, county cricket on a Sunday afternoon. And its its customer base is kind of based around that demographic, so it's got a very sticky kind of uh, you know loyal base. So they have you know retention rate rates well over ninety percent of their customers. And what they tend to find is even if they withdraw funds from certain parts of the business, like um, they tend to put in others, or it stays within uh, Brooks. So it's uh, they've 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 kind of cornered that genteel market let's uh, let's put it like that and um the secret to their success though this year i think is the fact that they're they're doing quite well at upgrading their it because they have such a, a stable base of clientele that the challenge for them is not uh recurring revenue and or recurring fees in that sense it's trying to get the cost of servicing the customers lower which is where their margin starts to come in so they were completed an it project recently that's substantially brought down their operating costs and um yeah, that's kind of reflected in the the you know the, the latest upgrades for them are showing that they're going to they're going to put uh, EPS up by about twelve percent on the basis of this. So it's quite a, a substantial improvement if you consider that your your basic cost base is, is your basic income base is, is more or less steady and stable and fixed. Yeah. Um, so it's a quite, it's an interesting business, and um, yeah, they've been far more their share price has been far more uh, less volatile than almost any other. So you know they they're, they're down like all the other managers, so about twenty seven percent for the year, but that's roughly half the fall of uh, most of uh, most of its peers or or any of the larger um, asset managers this year. So uh, it's definitely a business to look to look out for. Um, you know, if they're getting that, that that kind of operational performance in this kind of market, so so I know Brooks are quite interesting. Just on Brooks, as you say, they are an interesting business. They had a, a good run up as well since you know 2020. Before that, they were working through some operational issues, but it really does seem yeah in the past couple of years they they have you know really started to the share price obviously did very well in 2021, but also operationally they've really come through as you say. They're still seeing decent inflows this year from private clients which is no no small thing in the current market and uh something that a lot of people will be envious of i think i think so and, and, and there is groom to grow as well because uh, yeah that end of the asset management market is very fragmented uh there are a lot of specialist businesses who service quite high net worth individuals but with individual you know with specific things like they do pension planning or money management or whatever and if you can consolidate that into one 
one branded business, uh, you know, the potential for for fees, which is what this is all about, is considerably higher. So that's you know, I, I, th- I think that that's uh, Brooks is on a is on a good uh, is on a good trajectory, despite the fact that the shares are down twenty percent, twenty seven percent, and you can pick them up roughly on a forward PE of twelve, which is probably the lowest in eighteen months. I would have said, you know, I, I think quite promising from that point of view. They do remind me of. Another another business I'm doing similar things, which is Tatton Asset Management, which is is less private client, but more the kind of business where their business model is based on financial advisors outsourcing the investment responsibilities to them, and they they've they've gone great guns in recent years. They I, I do quite like this business from my perspective of some of my previous hats here at FT uh, at the FT. Some of the sectors we've covered in terms of you know they they are really doing well cornering that market. So it does show that on aim there are these interesting wealth and asset managers available Tatton is a bit more expensive but another company we are going to talk about Gresham House Julian yeah so Gresham is an um, a slightly more esoteric one than than Brooks or Tatton it's mm. uh, an asset manager that deals in alternative assets so then for example they own quite large chunks of Ireland which obviously last time but that didn't go very there's a there's a yeah there's a bit of a problem with absentee landlords in Ireland in the past but uh, yeah so they, they they have this this variegated business model where they they buy up forests in New Zealand. That's another thing. They've got quite a lot of uh, alternative energy assets as well in in various funds. It's an interesting. I mean, from intellectually, it's an interesting business. I don't. I, the, the 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 question mark for me um, as an investor is whether the assets are, are kind of dangerously illiquid. So you, you kind of, you could end up in a situation where theoretically, I mean, we're not suggesting that that's a problem at Gresham, but you know, theoretically, if there's a call of, on uh, on funds, if there's a sudden mark to market crisis of some sort, then, you know, those classic illiquid funds are the ones that are the first ones to suffer in any, um, in any uh, scenario, in those kind of scenarios, so you you kind of have to balance off the risk there. I think that would be my my impression. But it doesn't make them any less less interesting if you're looking for an asset that isn't all about you know just managing um, funds in uh, Chipping Norton or something like that. But mm. uh, a lot of their structures are investment trust based as well, which should help with the the illiquidity point up to a point at least uh, in terms of you know there being a pressure on them to to sell those assets. It, it is quite interesting that. The, the niches they're in, as you say, forestry being the biggest single subsector which they're, they're involved in, new energy, sustainable infrastructure, as you mentioned, that obviously has been popular again this year, which, which can be easy to forget sometimes. You know, there, there's been a lot of, a bit of a political backlash against sustainable investing this year, and certainly investors as well, I think, have realised that some of these strategies aren't just going to go straight up forever. But but the inflows are still are still coming in. You know, there's a lot of interest, obviously, in renewable energy right yeah, now. Of all of them, noticeably, the, the, you know, their inflows have been quite healthy. I think, mm. um, and you do wonder whether that is related to the fact that they're owning physical assets. So there must be an, there must be a correlation between the fact that they're uh, they're not really open to the public markets in terms of what they invest in. Um, so that that is that is perhaps the upside of having all an alternative asset is that you don't have to you know your daily net asset value is not determined necessarily by what the current market prices of of you know you what might be a publicly held asset whereas mm-hmm. you know a forest somewhere is harder to value and <laughs> on a yeah. day-to-day basis you could turn it all into furniture i suppose and sell it but uh, uh it's uh, yeah it's an interesting investment play but i think you have to be more savvy about it than 
you know, there is the, the case is slightly more nuanced than um, than it is with Brooks, which is a much more straightforward uh, investable asset from a from a private investor's point of view. So you, yeah, you'd have to do more work on uh, on whether that is a, a class of of uh, an asset class that you would want to get involved in. I think yeah, but uh, it's no less interesting for all that. Indeed, I should say as well. This is a uh, Simon Thompson has written about Gresham a fair amount, and he he does like them currently. Uh, as you say, everyone should do their own work on the company, but uh, we have written. A decent amount about them uh, through Simon's columns, so do look out for those if you are interested. Yeah, never, never argue with Simon Thompson on anything. I think that's uh, also well, the the lesson to draw from that. <laughs> not necessarily investment advice, but yeah, you wouldn't have gone far wrong uh, to have done that in in recent years. That uh, is the end of our aim section for now. As I say, the first fifty of the top one hundred are in the magazine this week. The second fifty will follow next week, and we'll talk a bit more about them on next week's podcast as well. But for now, we're going to turn to a different market entirely. We're going to turn to government spending in the US, specifically the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act a couple of months ago has started to feed through to some companies. This act, despite its name, is is putting quite a lot of money behind new technologies, trying to really shift the dial in terms of energy production and renewable energy and things like that. And, and that means a lot of lithium companies in the US, but also some in the UK are starting to see the benefits. Alex Hamer, you have written about this for us this week. Can you say a bit more? Yeah, I mean, the this is almost a sequel story, the one in this week's magazine, um, because a week or two weeks ago, I wrote about how Europe was was getting left behind in terms of um, not just mining lithium, but also processing it into a form that can be used in um, battery factories, which are often called gigafactories. Um, and then and then that gets put into electric cars. So there's is you know like most things, there's a multi-stage supply chain here, and you kind of need all of the parts to make it. Well, most of the parts even to make it work. So I wrote that story saying Europe's fallen behind um, after a mining. Um, CEO told me he would love to ship his his lithium product to Europe, um, but instead it'll be shipped to China and then potentially um, to Europe um, down along the way. So I thought I you know I made some comments in, or or people made some comments in that story about how the US was doing things differently with a lot more government support, and so I thought I'd expand on that. And that has come off the back of the the US government. Um, through the Department of Energy, and it's also a White House policy as well, they've announced $2.8 billion worth of um, direct grants that have gone directly to companies trying to build processing facilities that go into the, the, the EV space eventually. Um, and this is, this is pretty big. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an Australian company that has a mine in Africa and they are mining graphite, so not lithium itself, but part of that battery environment, I guess. Um, and they've been trying to get this Louisiana plant off the ground. The company's called Sierra Resources for a few years now. And the market's come up recently, so their, their fortunes have improved. But they've just been handed $150 million, which is a significant amount if you're trying to build um, a processing facility. And I think the size of these projects ranges from maybe the total cost would be $2 billion. The total cost might be $200 million. And the government's just paid for most of it. But it shows a, a real commitment to getting this this domestic supply chain off the ground, and I guess the the another important point to mention in my opening spiel is that they basically want these 
non-Chinese supply chains. So if China under a potentially even more aggressive or protectionist government of Xi Jinping, either in two years or five years or a hundred years, assuming he's still around, which he might be then, they can still make cars for people and keep their, their auto industries going. Yeah. As you said at the top, one of the things here, as well as you know, these considerable sums, is the way that it's is really compounding perhaps not the problems for Europe, but the difficulty in maintaining you know expectations. You know, I think you cite some data showing uh, Europe as a percentage of total worldwide battery production. Those forecasts are really being scaled down partly because the US is starting to ramp up and looking to keep a lot of that production for the reasons you've just stated. You know, either onshore or close to shore, rather than further afield. Yeah, and I and I think though that there's so many different data points you can use, and that that one you're referring to is basically the whole pie in the last two years or two and a half years, and this is data from Benchmark you know, Intelligence, which kind of leads the way on this stuff. They compared their forecast from two and a half years ago, January 2020, with their forecast from last month. And overall, the, the, the pie is bigger in terms of battery manufacturing capacity for, for, for the middle of this decade. And the US um, proportion of that production has gone from I think eight to twelve percent, and Europe's is, has come down very slightly. And I think basically what you're going to see over the next few years is China has about seventy percent of battery production, about seventy percent of processing, and their their share ranges from about sixty to eighty percent of of everything basically um, in the EV game. And basically the rest of the world is is going to be chipping away at that. And it's partly because the Chinese have put so much money into this for so long and have, you know, they have so many electric cars already running around and they might just be funny little runabouts that, that people have bought rather than, say, a Tesla, but it's still an electric vehicle that might have replaced a, um, a car. So, yeah, they're, they're far ahead. It, it's, it, it's, what is interesting to me is that you're still getting companies in the UK and in Europe who... I just, you know, they're doing all the right things to, to, to form part of this supply chain, but they're still taking such a long time to get it working because it is, it is fairly new technology. And, and through that pace, you're seeing things like um, there was a company that is in Finland called Kelibar, K-E-L-I-B-E-R, and they were kind of chipping away at various Finnish permits and investments and actually had the Finnish government on side to build this facility to, to plug into their local um, EV production um, supply chain. And then an American company that doesn't even do electric vehicles just comes along and buys them. And so they now, they now own a, a chunk of European EV, uh, the European EV supply chain. And it's just, it's, it's a sense of kind of the softly, softly approach, both from governments and um, investors in Europe has just meant that things are a bit slow and therefore the share of cars getting sold by European car makers is going to decrease as EV take-up increases uh, because they are just not producing in those numbers. Slow it may be but as with any new technology there is the the flip side to watch for if you're an investor which is that you know these these big promise, big ticket items don't always come to fruition. And sometimes, you know, the investor interest can perhaps get ahead of itself. And one example potentially is that of European lithium, which is 
perhaps going to list in the US, as you write in the piece, at, at a pretty pretty hefty uh, valuation compared with its current yeah. market cap. It's currently listed in Australia already, I think. Yeah, and this is, this is a kind of global story that that will probably have investors either celebrating or shaking their heads all over the place because it's it's a, it's an Australian stock exchange as a company that has an asset in Austria that's not it's not massively exciting. It's just like a could be a, a spodumene um, hard rock mine. And they haven't been getting enough love in Australia. The share price has come down a fair bit. You know, I would argue that they're not unfairly valued, but they want a taste of the the, the New York rush. So they're planning a, a SPAC listing at the moment. And obviously SPACs have come off the boil and almost discredited as a way to list. You know, we've seen things like Arrival in a similar space just completely drop off since the SPAC listing. You know, things like that show that, the, 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 the valuation jumped from 70 million pounds on the ASX to almost a billion dollars through this secondary listing in the US just shows how nuts it's been. But I mean, I, that's probably the extreme top end of the, the valuation that some bankers come up with on a, on a half-baked pitch deck. But the fact that it's, someone's even written it down, I think shows um, that things are, things are rapidly moving on from, for example, the, the various London companies that have tried to get lithium mines up with fairly low valuations over the past probably five years, which in itself has seen probably two or three very distinct, I guess, um, boom and bust periods for the for the battery metals companies. But yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the way I, I end the piece is basically saying that there is potential for a European equivalent of the Inflation Reduction Act that, and also the fact that maybe institutions like the European Investment Bank, the European Commission and, and the European Battery Metals kind of peak body see this and, and react and throw a, a few bits of cheese at these companies in the same way that, that the US has done. And, that, and, and if that's the case, any project that is permitted already on mainland Europe, any midstream processing plants that are even in kind of early, early development should get a bit of cash as well. I mean, this is, this is all a massive if, but, you know, I think, I think it would rapidly change um, the investment scenario for these kind of projects. You know, and, and companies like Cornish Lithium, which had delayed an IPO, you know, it would probably change the story a bit. And I've been quite dismissive of that as, as, a, as a company um, just because it, it seems subscale still in a fairly residential part of the world and doesn't have uh, any local processing capabilities to send its lithium to. But, I mean, a few bill from the EU, even if <laughs> we obviously remain outside the EU, just to, to try and start that supply chain a bit better, that would just rapidly change the, the prospects of, these, of that kind of company. Yeah, perhaps the US activity will be a bit of an uh, indication that they need to get things going, although invariably these things do seem to take time, however much uh, urgency there may be. Well, we'll keep an eye on that uh, as we uh, as we tend to do. Thank you, Alex. Let's, let's finish today very briefly by, by touching on a couple of uh, results from uh, this morning. In fact, we were recording on Wednesday, as mentioned. Seemed quite uh, contradictory, uh, Julian and Mark. Insofar as Google, you know, has had a bit of a warning in terms of the digital ad spend, you know, uh, figures there were lower than expected, saying, you know, perhaps there's some sign of weakness coming through there. In contrast to the likes of WPP, which has followed almost all its big 
advertising peers in, in saying there no we see no slowdown at all in that spend obviously they're dealing with big uh, issues of their own such as labor costs and general costs but but they're quite bullish on that spend and even smaller companies in the uk s4 capital for example are still you know doing pretty well saying everything's going okay so it struck me as just quite interesting that that um discrepancy between is it between digital ads and old-fashioned advertising is it between companies in a certain area and these you know conglomerates in a lot of cases who have enough strings to their bow to be able to ride out this area is it just um, something that will come out in the wash oh i, I was i was looking around casting around to see if i could find some um uh, statistical evidence from what happened after the the layman collapse in uh, 2008 mm. and the, a couple of years after that the, the, this just re refers to the u.s market but <clears throat> excuse me the overall market dropped by about 13 percent but it, it differs quite widely across uh, different mediums so you had uh, newspaper ads spending that dropped by 27% uh, radio by 22% magazines 18 out of home 11% television five percent and online by only uh two percent as well and i'm, I'm just wondering because it's right i don't know I, I don't think we can necessarily make too many assumptions based on uh, google's experience there particularly as um youtube is you know it, it's it's a more competitive field there because of uh, TikTok as well no doubt mm -hmm. uh but I, I don't know does, it, does this reflect that uh, there's a, a wider acceptance or appreciation that uh, marketing and advertising spend should be maintained during downturns to, uh, you know, so you hold your market share and there's a possibility you may be able to gain some as well. But, but I, don't, I don't know, it'll just, we'll, we'll have to wait a little while as well because presumably, you know, we've got a few tough months in front of us. I, I also think you tend to find that uh, advertising companies' uh, profitability is sort of lags where the economy is heading. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if there is a secular squeeze on on um, company earnings, and they tend to f tend to experience it sort of a year or even or two years later. I remember that one of the the worst years for WPP was around 2010, which is yeah a couple of years after the financial crash itself. So you, you might be in the post. You just don't know looking precisely from these results although i do notice that they they were warning a little bit on their on their margin that we're experiencing some margin pressure i think but i mean not yeah. enough to not enough to cause uh, anyone any particular alarm but i mean I, I would say that they're more they're more business cycle dependent which is is a much longer cycle than the, the one we're used to with the market i think there were some positive notes as well this week from i think it was nestle said they're going to be increasing their marketing in the second half of this year because supply chain pressures have eased and it's freed up a bit of cash and obviously companies like Nestle are really, we've spoken about this a bit on the podcast before, but you know, they're really under pressure to maintain their brands at a time when people might want to, to trade down to, to private label products. So, you know, if you see more consumer health companies, consumer goods companies doing that, that could be some ballast, but I don't think those alone will be enough to bail out the ad agencies if we do go into a proper downturn, we shall, uh, we shall see. Uh, that brief uh, assessment is all we have time for. We have come to the end of today's show. Thank you to Alex, to Mark, to Julian and to John. Thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week, as ever, with another Companies and Market Show. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 